Matthew 4 and in verse 1 says that then Jesus was led, by the, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I always love in verse 2, it's comical in the, in the text where it says, And when Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was a little bit hungry, believe it or not. You know, it's almost as if it could, could also say that, that he climbed Mount Everest. Oh, and by the way, after he did that, he was a little tired after that, right? Well, it says in verse 3 that, that now when the tempter came to him, he said that it, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And yet Jesus answered and said to him, that it is written, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the reason why I read that is because I find it so remarkable how when it says that Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights and that he was hungry, that is the exact same word that comes out of Jesus' mouth one chapter later on the Sermon on the Mount as he's now in the middle of, of his Beatitudes. And then he looks at a multitude and he says, Blessed are all of those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness. For all of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled and satisfied. In other words, Jesus is giving a description of what his followers are going to look like. And that, and that description here is that, that his followers are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness with the same degree of hunger that Jesus felt in his body after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, a month and a half without food. Jesus says, blessed are all those who hunger after righteousness in that same exact fashion. And that's exactly what that word hunger means in the, um, in the original language. We, we read that word hunger with our American eyes and we just think, oh, okay, we might just be a little bit hungry. And yet anybody who had Greek eyes as this had been written reads starving. It means that you are ardently craving something to the point where it is a hunger that actually hurts. And that word thirst means the exact same thing as well. It is a thirst that is so severe, so, so parched that it is a thirst which can be felt. It is one which actually hurts within you. This is really the kind of thirst that a marathon runner might well feel after mile 26 where, where you just want water more than anything in the world. Or maybe you were walking through a vast desert and there is no water in sight and all that you want in that moment is for your thirst to be quenched. And yet, what is Jesus doing here though? He's saying that having spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst are the characteristics of what my followers are one day going to look like. He's saying that if you want to follow after me, you need to have a hunger and a thirst for what is right. People who live so righteously that, that they hunger for it as if they were starving in a third world country. That they are thirsting after it as if they, they have nothing to drink and they, they say, please, Give me something that I can drink. And I believe that the reason why Jesus has, has this, this metaphor of hungering and thirsting in a food and drink 
It's because our lives depend on food and on drink. Is there anybody here, is there one person here who does not like to eat? I mean, this is who we are in so many ways. We, we um, spend so many years of our lives, if you add up all the hours, seated at a table, eating with one another. This is so important for us. This is one of the most strongest appetites that we have as human beings. That when we are hungry, that we yearn for our food. And that yearning has to be gratified. There is no desire built within us as people that is stronger physically than our need for water or for drink. These are natural appetites that absolutely must be gratified within us. And if they are not gratified, then we simply will not survive. We will perish. We will die. And so we see the Israelites many years ago crying out in the wilderness, God, please give us food. And yes, they had complained and murmured about it plenty. But we also see them crying out to God, God, please give us something to eat. And so time after time, God gives them manna, miraculous um, food out of heaven. In so many ways, love that word manna in the Hebrew. Its definition is a question. Manna literally means, what is it? Well, after Israel had eaten, then we, we also see them crying out to God, God, please give us something to drink. And then God has Moses, he has a staff and he strikes a rock and God provides water for his people out of that rock. God is providing for their hunger and for their thirst as they come before him saying, God, please feed us. Please quench our thirst. And yet we also know that there are, are many other kinds of food in this world. Foods that compete for our very souls and for our very hearts. How in Luke's account is Luke reaches this um, area of Jesus's ministry and he begins listing all of the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. And we will see what, what, what he means by this in just a moment. But then he also expounds on that where, where it does not in Matthew. And he says the exact opposite. He says, woe to you who are well fed now. For a time is coming very soon when, when you're going to be hungry, when you're going to be starving after what is truly good and what is truly lasting. What Jesus is speaking about on that last part there is that these are all of those individuals in the world who may have, have, have been there in his, in his presence. And yet their only real appetites are for the earthly feast are for all of those um, things which come from this earth. And they are looking to this world and all the ways that this world might, might in a very short way, numb our pain or to give us an escape. And yet inevitably, once, once all of that, that rubs off on us, when we turn to all of these um, things of the world, what if it's earthly popularity, if it is stuff, if it's money, whatever it might be, these things are inevitably going to leave us very empty, very spiritually malnourished and very much starving in a spiritual way. 
as Jesus says in the parable of the sower, the, um, he says that the seed which fell among the thorns, these are all of those individuals who have heard the message, but as they are, are, are now going on their way, notice as he says that they are choked, that they are being suffocated with worries and with riches and with the pleasures of this life. This is what he's talking about right here. Anything that we turn to looking to be filled in a spiritual way if it comes from this world. Jesus is saying that is going to leave you sick. St. Augustine said that, that our hearts are going to be restless until at last they find their rest in God, which is where it's the only place where we can be spiritually fed and spiritually satisfied in that sense. And yet I just want to go back to this again because we, we as people, it seem like, spend so many years of our lives, so much time of our existence, gorging, drinking muddy water out of a street corner, gorging on cotton candy and on Kool-Aid, when all the while God is over here saying that I've got steak for you, I've got potatoes, I've got wine for you. And yet the incredible thing is about this, this other kind of food that God gives us is that it is not a physical food. It is not a, a literal wine or a steak or a literal, literal potatoes. But rather, what God is inviting all of us to is to the spiritual feast. As we might remember in John's Gospel, John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people out of just, just five loaves and from two fishes. And there are a lot of people saying, we, we have to hold on to this guy because he is doing incredible things that we've never seen before. Well, Jesus goes away from them for a short while because they want to make him king by force. Somehow they track Jesus down. But as they start coming close to Jesus, Jesus looks at this specific crowd and he knows these people are not here because they want to know about the kingdom of heaven. But rather, these are people who just want the earthly feast. As he says in John chapter 6, in one place, he says that you seek me not because you saw me feed 5,000 people out of nothing, hardly, but because he says that, that you're working for the wrong food. All that these people cared about, it was not Jesus or the kingdom of heaven, but, but all that they had cared about was loaves and fishes. All these people wanted, really the only reason why these people had stood before Jesus is because they simply wanted another free lunch. Jesus says that your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died a long time ago. They died with their stomachs full of manna. And yet I'm going to give you a bread that if you eat this bread, you are going to live forever. And that's a fascinating concept, isn't it? That you will live forever if you eat this true and living bread. And yet that's not what they wanted. That's not what, what still to this day most people want from Jesus. You see, Jesus did not come here so that he could put on a magic show. That's what David Copperfield came to do. And yet Jesus came to give real food to us, spiritual food. Well, likewise, we also remember how even earlier as that had occurred, 
We remember Jesus is walking one day, and Jesus is a man of very intense action. And he gets to a well in Samaria, very thirsty, very exhausted. And he speaks to the Samaritan woman, and he says, give me something to drink. And she says, you, a Jew, asking me for water? This was unheard of at the time. Well, Jesus is looking at that well of Jacob. And he says that, that as long as you drink out of this well, you are going to have a thirst over and over and over again. You will never be satisfied. And yet he says, but whoever drinks of the water that I am going to give to him, true and living water, it's going to, to spring up within them. And it's going to be a well of eternal life. And so this woman says, sir, give me evermore this true and living water. I need this true and living water. And I think the really the greatest lesson that I learned in my entire life as a minister, it came, it came a long time ago. I was in high school at the time. And my dad in those days had been a youth minister at a church in Arizona. And we were just about to leave and go out for, for a lunch for the day. When, as we're all getting into the car, a woman at this church comes up to us and she asks my dad that I really need to have a study with you right now. I need you to pray with me. And so off they go. And about an hour and a half later, he comes back and we're just letting him have it. Come on, dad. You kept us waiting in the car. We're hungry. You know, we want to go to lunch. And he looks right at me and he calls me to task on that. And he just kind of stops everything he's doing and he just looks deep into my eyes and he says that that woman's empty soul is so much more important than our empty stomachs and i mean ever since he had said that that has remained with me all of these years because it was as if he was hungry as we got into the car physically but the moment that that woman came to us, tears in her eyes, saying, saying that, that I need to know more about Jesus, it's as if his physical appetite had, was, was simply no more for that hour and a half. The only thing that he cared about was, was how can I fill her soul with this true and living water and with this real spiritual food? Because after all, there is a side of man that lives by bread. And if that really is all there is to man, then, then how blessed is the man who, who has bread? And yet Jesus here is saying to us that, that there is a far greater side to us, and that is a spiritual side. That as much as we need food and water for our physical survival, we need spiritual food so that we can spiritually survive. Because without it, we're going to be just like all of those individuals Jesus speaks about, who are choked with the worries and the riches and the pleasures of this present life. So Jesus is saying, blessed is he and she who keeps that fire burning in their soul. Blessed are all of those who have this deep, intense craving to be in a right relationship with God, to keep covenant with a heavenly assignment. So that their, their life upon the earth as a Christian can be a life of intense peace. Because as we see, as far as our spiritual feast goes, the, the examples are literally endless in, in Scripture. 
I've condensed only a few of them here, but there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens. I think about King David as he says, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul is thirsting for you. He says, my, my flesh is yearning for you, Father. I think about Job as he's going through everything that, that, that he's going through. Notice how Job says that, that I have not departed from the commands of his lips, but, but especially take note that I have treasured the words of the mouth of my God more than my daily bread. As far as we know, Job was, was in so deep a state of melancholy and of gloom that he was not able to, to eat physically for a long time. And so what was literally fueling Job on in that time was the words of the mouth of God, spiritual food. I also think about the Apostle Peter as he says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by that you may grow in respect to your salvation. Again, we see that the examples are endless. And yet I think that a lot of times where we get our tires stuck in the mud as far as our lives as Christians is when it comes to this word righteousness, as Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, there are a lot of people in the world who hear that as a bad word. Because if we play word association, like we could with the word holiness, there's a lot of people who hear that word holy and their minds instantaneously go to holy rollers. Or a person who is holier than thou, who's looking down upon everybody else. This, this really is the exact same thing. I think most people hear this word righteousness and they hear self-righteous. They remember many people in their lives who, who felt that they were superior to them. We remember phrases in scripture like, as we see Abraham asking God and he interviews God and he says, Lord, if there are, are just 50 righteous people in the city and he asks God, will you allow those who are righteous to perish with those who are wicked? And I think for a lot of Christians, we hear phrases like that and we think, well, if you go to church, then you're good. But if you aren't yet going to church, then you're just a horrible, wicked wretch of a person. And we need to stay as far away from, from all of them as we possibly can. That's when self-righteousness starts coming in. I mean, when we spend our, our lives resisting earthly and fleshly desires, but we live amongst all of these other people who are not resisting those urges, it can be so easy for us to become self-righteous. When we spend 30, 40, 50 years sitting in pews on Sunday morning and our neighbors and our coworkers spend 30, 40, 50 years sitting on couches and on, and on stadium seats on Sunday morning. It could be very easy for us to become self-righteous and to think, okay, we are something special and yet they are the scum of the earth. And a lot of times what happens is I'm reminded, I'm reminded of of an Alice Cooper song. And I think it is such a perfect analogy of what self-righteousness is. I just want us to, to hear this lyric. I brush my hair, I brush my teeth, I go to church. 
Nice guy. I brush my hair. I brush my teeth. I go to church. I must be a really special guy, as sweet as apple pie, right? And I love that because that is a satirical response to evangelical you know, snobbery and, and self-righteousness because that is what a lot of people see out of Christians. That I'm better than you because I go to church, because I brush my hair, because I do everything in the right way. That is a very soft, churchy, religious translation of that word. And yet really what the word is that we really need to understand is the word justice. I believe that when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that the far, far stronger word that, that he had in mind is the word justice. What this means is that anybody who is going to walk in the footsteps of Jesus is that they want to be a living solution to the world's perils. It means that they want to come to the rescue of people who are victims of injustice. And yet, as it comes to righteousness and to justice, though, what we need to understand, though, is that this is not about our own piety and morality. Who immediately jumps out to my mind is the Pharisees. We remember how the Pharisees outwardly looked as if they were righteous, but inwardly they were full of hypocrisy. The only problem with this in their case is that Jesus says that I did not come to call those who are righteous, but I came to call those who are sinners and who know in their bones that they're sinners. For he says that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who, who repents then over 99 righteous people who, who feel that repentance is beneath them. And in fact, Jesus, in just a few verses, is going to go on and he says, that unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you can talk about heaven all you want to, you can follow me all you want to, but you're never going to see the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness surpasses that of theirs. And so what we see from the jump is that righteousness and justice is so much more than just merely going to, to um, church more. It's more than, than, than reading our Bibles more often. It's more than, than saying our bedtime prayers like good little boys and girls. And yet it's also not our righteousness. But rather what it is is that it is God's righteousness alive and well inside of us. Really, in other words, any righteousness that is going to make its way into this mess, you can know that it's not because of me, but it's only because his righteousness is beginning to make its way inside of my heart. And again, the examples are absolutely endless. How Paul says that there is none righteous, no, there, there is not even one who's righteous. But by his doing, you and I are in Christ Jesus. It's all because of him. He, um, he says in his letter at Philippi that, that we may be found in him not having a righteousness of our own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Notice the righteousness which comes from God when we have a faith and a confidence in his lordship. 
And yet the most important aspect of what it means to have righteousness and to have justice and to hunger and to thirst for that is that God wants this to be where we have a spiritual appetite that is vastly greater than, than our appetites for our physical food. Because the thing about Jesus is that we will never consume every single bite of the Word of God. We will never, even if we live to be a million years old, we will never drink every last drop of the magnitude of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In fact, we should beware of anybody who would have us think that they have mastered the Scriptures or who have known everything about the Lordship of God. Amen. You see, hungering and thirsting for justice for righteousness, this really should be an hourly component of you and of me from day to day. We should live, in a sense, in a constant state of dissatisfaction about where we are in terms of our, our knowledge of God. In terms of exactly where we are as Christians, we will never arrive as long as we are on this earth. And I found a perfect example in the most weirdest place this week. As I was racking my mind for what would be a perfect analogy of what Jesus is saying here in terms of, of hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the first place where my mind went was to a beer commercial, of course. I remember an ad campaign a few years ago, uh, Dos Equis, and they had this guy who was the most interesting man in the world. And at the end of all of these commercials for this beer, he would have a catchphrase. Here it is. Stay thirsty, my friends. Stay thirsty, my friends. Is that not exactly what Jesus is saying here? Stay thirsty, my friends. He might not have a Spanish accent, as he says. But maybe, maybe not. But he's saying, and I'll play it again for us. Stay thirsty, stay hungry, never be satisfied with where you are as you follow in my footsteps. When we come before Jesus and we say, Jesus, please quench my thirst, please fill me. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus wants for us. And yet as a minister, I've spoken to all kinds of audiences throughout the world. I've been with Amanda before where I've spoken to audiences where they were just salivating, where they were starving for every single word that I read out of Scripture. I mean, every person in the room is just, you know, like eating out of the palm of my hand the whole time. Tell us more about Jesus. And yet I've been among other audiences where they were starving and had been salivating. But they were starving and salivating for the earthly feast. Where they would look at the preacher and say, come on, preacher, let's just, just spit it out. I got a pot roast in the oven. Come on, just get it over with. Come on, we don't have all day. Come on, come on, come on. Or at other times it might be, well, you know, the Giants and the Cowboys started 20 minutes ago. Come on, just get it over with. 15 minutes, let's get out of here. And all of that is the earthly feast. What I've come to realize about my knowledge about the scriptures, and I was born with a Bible in my hand at the crib, 
is that what I think I know about Scripture, it's good. I know that I know that I'm saved. I know Jesus is Lord. And yet our knowledge is really just a doorknob. There is, on the other side of that door, there is a whole other world, a whole other ocean, a whole other universe of deeper knowing, of more intimate Christ following, if we will just hunger and thirst after it. If we will just, just, just have a spirit like Michael Jordan's. Or after he won his first championship, it was like, this is the greatest day of my life. That's not good enough. I want another championship. He wins a second championship. I want another championship. He comes back out of retirement. I want another championship. But I'm not satisfied. I want another one and another one until the wheels fall off. This is how Jesus wants us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. He wants us to be like, like the guy on, on um, Hacksaw Ridge, I believe it's called, where they are at war and he saves something like 100 of his infantrymen, each time jumping up a hill thinking, I've got to save one more. And after I save him, I've got to save another one and another one and another one until the wheels fall off. It was the attitude of the Apostle Paul, a guy who, who wrote half of, of the New Testament, who planted churches all throughout that known world at the time, but, but who writes in the later years of his life that, that I want to know Christ. In other words, I want to know Jesus deeper than I ever have before. You see, when Jesus becomes all that we are living for, when we lie down at night, and the last thought on our minds is, I want to be like Jesus. When we wake up in the morning and, and he's still haunting our minds thinking, I want to be Jesus in the lives of everybody who I see today. When we go through every day of our life thinking that, that I want to be more like him than I was one hour earlier. And I want to be more like him one hour from now than I was right now. We hunger and we thirst after what he would want us to. You see, the thing about God's justice is that it's very strange and it's very beautiful. Here's the thing about God's weird and beautiful justice is that when we turn our hearts toward his will, when we zealously are desiring for, for, for us to move out and for him to move inside, notice his justice gives us what we do not deserve. As Jerry read earlier out of Psalm 103, also there in that same Psalm, it says that, that he has not rewarded us according to our iniquities, that he has not treated us as our sins are deserving him to treat us. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst because they will be satisfied. It's a word which means that I'm going to, to literally fatten you up. I'm going to be feeding you and filling you if you hunger and thirst in this way. And yet, as I meet all kinds of people, you'd be amazed at how many people are completely repulsed by the idea of church. It's because they have gone to many churches before. And it seemed like the only thing that had mattered in those churches were, were the attendance charts where they walked in and, and it felt all over that they don't really 
care about me. I'm not even a name to these people. I'm just a number on a board. I'm just an oxen that they can um, herd through this auditorium. It was all about who is more righteous than who in that church. You see, that is alarming to me because Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights fasting from his, his literal food. And yet I wonder if the American church has been fasting 40, 50, 60 years from hungering and thirsting after justice and after righteousness. Because what Jesus is inviting all of us to as Christ's followers is simply to unleash his weird, strange, beautiful justice in a world of injustice. We remember how Jesus told his apostles that, that my food, that my bread, that, that my water is to do the will of him who sent me. And may God hasten the day when you and I have that same exact hunger and thirst within us as Jesus had. That our greatest food is to do the will of our Father in heaven. And so the most important part of any message is not what we learn. I hope we never walk away from a message thinking, okay, on to the next one. But, but really the most important part of this every single week is now we've got to experiment with this. Now we've got to leave this auditorium seeking, how can I put this into practice this week? And so, what injustice makes you want to, to jump up to and to do something about it in Jesus' name? You know, a lot of times as a church, we, we think that if, we, if we're going to do something as a church, it needs to be some kind of expensive, elaborate, you know, a Broadway production that's going to stress everybody out. And yet, a lot of times, it's in the very small things that can make the most difference. I heard about a church in Tennessee, and they, they have been speaking, and they said that it is a gross injustice in this world, that there are, are, are so many special needs children who feel so worthless, who feel so lonely in their lives. And so what this church does every single year is that, that they actually host a prom for special needs children. It seems like, like a very small thing. This brings so much joy and love into these individuals' hearts and their families' hearts that, that in their own way, this church is hungering and thirsting after justice and after righteousness. I heard about another church um, in another state, out um, in Texas, I believe it was, and they got together and said that it is a gross injustice that, that there are, are many people in this world whose perception of Jesus and the church is that God hates us. God can't wait until we go to hell. And so this church had decided way out of the box that we're going to go to a gay parade. And they were not yelling at anybody. They were not instructing them about how horrible of human beings that they are. They've heard enough of that in their, their lives, but all this church was there to do was just say that, that as a fellow human being, we love you. As the creation of God, God loves you. 
And they just hugged everybody there. It seems like a very small thing, but I would like to think a lot of, of individuals at this parade went home, perhaps with a new perspective of Christians and of Jesus. And yet it's something that the week we might be able to do this week in a restaurant. Maybe the next time we have a waiter who is having an absolutely horrible day, and it's very evident, like we order steak, and he brings us fish or something like that, right? When he forgets to bring a refill for us, when we get a check, we just write and we scribble down something like, like this, that I serve a God who lavishly gives us good things. And I believe that he calls me to do the exact same thing to other people. And I appreciate all that you have done for us today. Hope you have a wonderful remainder of the day. And then on the tip, you write $80. You write $60, $20, $100, whatever it is. And God's weird, unfair justice, beautiful justice, will have come into the life of another person. It all boils down to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. That Notice he says that the righteous are going to answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? He says, truly I say to you that to the extent that you did it unto the one of the least of these brothers of mine, even the very least of them, all the while you were doing it to me. When we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we prepare a lavish spiritual physical feast for Jesus. That's because whoever we feed, whoever we um, clothe and give water to, we're really handing all of that over to Jesus. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for heavenly justice, for you shall be satisfied. And I just want to have our call to action again in the words of the least likely man who we might ever hear. Stay thirsty, my friends. Stay thirsty, brothers and sisters.